Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. Once again, welcome to Four Corners Church. Today, we're going to have our last installment of our message series called Get Up, where we've been looking at the ways that the resurrection of Jesus empowers our lives as followers of Jesus to make a difference all through our lives. Before we jump into that, though, I wanted you to meet a couple friends of mine. Many of you know them. They're familiar faces around here. This is Ben and Heather Herine. Ben and Heather have been at Four Corners Church since before it was a church. Uh, back before we ever held our first service in 2004, we were meeting on mostly Sunday evenings. This was pre-kids for you guys. Yep. And um, you guys were a young and <laughs> very handsome couple then. You're still very beautiful. Yeah. Ben, we'll move on. Let, um, yeah. <laughs> but we were meeting together and we were planning and strategizing things. And they have been an integral part of this church from the very beginning. Uh, ben has served in a variety of capacities and over the last several years has been heavily invested in the, uh, the financial management side of what we do. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. It's very helpful. Um, and then Heather has served in children's ministry. So if you have kids here, part of why the ministry here goes very, very well is because of Heather's leadership and commitment and her love for these kids and her love for the Lord. But uh, they are exiting our church, and we don't make a big deal about the transitions. A lot of times that happen here, our church is too big to acknowledge all of those that happen. But this is a family whose DNA is a part of the, the bedrock of this place. And I wanted you to hear a little bit about their story and why they're exiting away from us. And uh, I wanted you guys to know how much we love you. So, Ben, tell everybody a little bit about what's going on in your family these days. Yeah, so uh, I had an opportunity. Uh, I work for GE. And a few months ago, they, they gave an opportunity for me to go interview uh, over in England. So uh, through a series of events. Uh, so it started, there, there's a pretty good story here. Um, Heather and I have been talking about possibly moving for a long time. Things We've actually thought we had to move a couple years ago, but we ended up getting to stay here a little bit longer, which was great for us. But then this opportunity came up to go look at Cheltenham, England. And so this was back in January we started talking about this. And I think our first reaction was, is, oh, my, <laughs> what are we, is, this, is this real? What are we going to do? So um, a, a while back, there's a family here, the Allens. So Lee Allen's a good guy and has been going here for a long time as well. He asked me, a, asked me about if I knew somebody. A guy named Tom Bradley, when, when Lee found out I worked at GE, he asked me, do I know Tom Bradley? Well, GE's a big company. Uh, there's about 8,000 <laughs> of us in the, uh, in the Cincinnati area. And 95% of the time I get that question, and it's, no, I don't know that person. Um, but by circumstance, 10 years ago or so, I had just met Tom Bradley. It was literally a couple days before that, and um, it was like, yeah, I know Tom. And Tom and I have talked a couple times over these few years. And this opportunity came up, and it just so happens that Tom Bradley has four kids, four boys, essentially the same ages of our three boys. And Tom also happens to live in Cheltenham, England. <laughs> and he's actually get, he just actually was getting ready to move back to uh, the States. But essentially, I was, taking, I was possibly going to be taking his job. And so I call up Tom, and I'm talking to him and just asking questions about the area, how, the, how his boys made the transition, how his wife loved it. All of it would sound amazing. And uh, then as I'm about to get off the phone with him, I ask him a question, a question that I don't ask a lot, especially when I don't know somebody that well. And I go, hey, long time ago, Lee, I know a guy named Lee Allen, and he told me at one point in time, you guys were in a Bible study together at the vineyard. And I was like, you know, Tom, I don't talk about this, but my wife and I, one of our biggest concerns is, will we find a church that we like? We go to a very similar church to the vineyard in Cincinnati, and our question is, is there a church like that? And he goes, Ben, there's an amazing church. It's, a, it's called Trinity. Uh, you'll, be, you'll go there. There's Essentially, you're, you're in a service or a worship area of 500-year-old church, but there's people up front playing guitars. So <laughs> very similar to what we got here. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. What, what, a, what a thing for Heather and me as we talked about. Is everything going to be Catholic, Presbyterian? No offense to anybody if that's where you came from. 
Um, <laughs> but that was the big concern of ours is because we love this church. We lo- our kids have grown up here. Obviously, we've been a major part of it here. Um, so fast forward to the interview comes through, and Heather and I are figuring out when the best time is we can go and go check out, or basically for me to go interview, then check out the new city. And it turns out we flew out, fly out on a Friday. Typically, I would fly out on a Saturday night or Sunday morning and get there basically right before an interview and have it Monday. So we fly out on a Friday, and as I'm talking to Heather, what are we going to do this weekend? She goes, I want to go to that church. And so Sunday morning, we get up. Uh, we head, head to this church, and for you guys that know Heather, uh, she's not a morning person. And... Uh, <laughs> To go to a service, that is, so you're five hours difference in time, so getting up in the morning to go to this church service was kind of crazy for her and for me. But anyway, so we're there, and it's exactly that. It's a 500-year-old building, pretty amazing, and there's people up front playing guitars. And so we're, sitting, or we're standing worshiping, and I about get sick. I am uh, literally about to throw up in front of the people in front of me. Um, through my head and through my mind, I'm going, all right, I'm 5,000 miles away from my kids. Um, am I really, I, I know there's going to be some period of time that I'm going to miss them because I'm going to probably have to come over before them. Everything in my mind was just flowing through, and I'm like freaking out. You have that feeling in your stomach where you just don't know what's going to happen. I felt really bad for the, the couple in front of us because I'm like, they're about to get <laughs> something bad on them here in a minute. <laughs> and then my favorite worship song comes on. One thing remains. It's the song that I've loved forever um, from a worship perspective. And this immediate calm just came over me. It was a, and literally I started connecting these dots. Lee Allen, Tom Bradley, Cheltenham, being here on a Friday or a Sunday morning with my wife, my favorite worship song, come on. And at that moment, I didn't know if I was going to take the job. The interviews were the next two days. But I knew at that moment in time that I was supposed to be there at that moment, that that was the, the resting and the calm that I needed. And then... Um, essentially, the next few weeks, as many sleepless nights or, or a lot of anxiety, I would just flip on that song on my phone and listen to it. And uh, so, turns out that I did get the job, and uh, <laughs> it turns out that uh, I will be heading over in a week, and then Heather and the boys a couple months after. Ben, it's incredible how that, you know, here you are in this time of transition and change. And like all of us, we'd be standing there going, is this the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? This is a big deal for our family. And then your heavenly father says, I got you. I got you. And he communicated to you in just the way you needed to hear it. And I love the fact that you guys have made church such a big priority. And it's a big part of your life that that's an essential part of the success ingredient for where you're going. Now, Heather, I'm going to ask you a question. And I I don't want to put you on the spot, but grab that mic for a second. (laughs) All right, so you've been a big, big part of kids' ministry here, which is just incredible. I mean, you've had a big part on my kids' life, lives. Um, what's on your heart and mind for your family as you think about this transition? Ah, well, obviously I want them to get connected somewhere else. In fact, one of the first things that Brayden asked me was, um, are you going to serve at a church there, Mom? Literally. <laughs> so, um, because he just started serving here, and that has been a very big part of his life, and he has loved every second of it. He often serves on weeks that he doesn't have to serve. He'll be like, Mom, can I serve tomorrow? Uh, so for me, it's just I want them to continue growing. I want them to have friends. I want them to fit in. Um, and I want them to know that church isn't just here that there's a whole nother world and that people might worship a little bit differently or it might be a little bit different of experience, but I want them to grow through that. Yeah. It's incredible when you see your kids plug in. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's just absolutely amazing. So let me ask you guys, I'll ask you then I spend, how can we as your church family here, this side of the pond, and, you know, GE tends to move people around, so we're (laughs) thinking maybe you'll come back, but uh, how can we pray for you in this time of transition and change? 
Uh, you know, one of my big prayers has been for my kids to fit in, for my kids to have friends, for them just to kind of find their place. They're not totally excited about going yet. They are, but they're still just very sad to leave. Yeah. And they won't let themselves get fully excited um, because they're so sad. So one of my big prayers has been for them. Um, and then obviously, I mean, we're going to be separated for a couple months, and that's going to be hard on us. So just that transition of, you know, figuring everything out and um, God's timing with the house and all that is just a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in. Ben, how about you? What's on your mind, on your heart for us as your church family that we can pray for you about? Yeah, so first, it's, it's, it's truly, <coughs> excuse me, it's truly our family here. Um, I mean, the last really month has been crazy in the house trying to get it ready. My wife has done an amazing job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the next few months as I transit or as I leave and then just really how the boys transition, um, and then I guess for me with the job is, um, culture is different. It's a different culture and leading, uh, 400 ish, 500 people, um, where they just, they, they, they're just different than Americans and nothing wrong with that, but just that I can understand that and get that as quick as possible. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to express to you how much we love you and how grateful I am personally for your investment in this place and in my own family. Um, We're going to miss you terribly. Uh, We're going to miss having you around the staff table, Heather. It's a joy to have you there, and your contribution is undeniable, and it cannot be erased. I mean, it's permanent. And, uh, Ben, your friendship over the years has meant the world to me. And I thought we as a church family could just bow our heads and pray for them right now. I'm going to stand between you, put my hands on your shoulder. We're just going to pray for you guys, all right? And then we'll, uh, we'll tell you how much we love you. Father, thank you. Thank you for Ben and Heather and their family, these three boys. God, it's clear that favor comes from you, and you've smiled on Ben and Heather and given them this opportunity. And we know, Lord, that uh, where you're opening the doors, you're going to provide everything that they need to thrive. We lift up the boys specifically right now, Father, and ask your hand to be upon them. Uh, In this time of transition where they're leaving friends and familiarity, God, we pray that in this time of transition what would happen is that they'd be connected more deeply to you to your church. They make new friends. They'd see how beautiful and awesome this world is, and they would see, God, how amazing ministry and a life for you can be through a different set of lenses. God, I pray for this marriage here, that your hand would be upon them. You draw them closer together. God, I pray for great favor for Ben, incredible effectiveness as a leader where he is, that God, the light that is within him that comes from Jesus would shine on everybody around him. God, I pray for this church that they're going to be a part of God, that, that this would become their spiritual family away from us. It'd be a place that they would grow deeply to become greater disciples of you. It'd be a place that they could invest in and they could do ministry there that would satisfy the call of God on their lives. Lord, we're so grateful for the investment they've made here. Protect every one of the seeds that they have sown, God. And we look forward to the future. And we all join together in your great big home. And we see just how big and amazing the impact of their lives has been. We give it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, would you just help me say thank you to this couple here who's been such a big part of what we've done. We love you guys. We love you. We love you. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, it's, uh, for me as a pastor to walk through these kinds of transitions is a really, really big deal. And uh, I think it's important for us to acknowledge the scripture says to give credit where credit is due. And ultimately that refers to Jesus, but on a practical level it refers to the people of Jesus who do great things. When you came in on your seat, there was a small group catalog. This is just for the summer. There are all kinds of cool things on there. And all you have to do today is if you want to sign up for a small group or get information about it, at Next Step C on your Connect card, you can just simply write the number there. And our team, if you'll turn that Connect card in and we can read your email, our team will communicate with you this week and begin to get you aligned for those opportunities that are coming up. And then the other thing I want to tell you about is something amazing you guys have done. Uh, this weekend, we had our first ever 4C India rummage sale. It was our first ever rummage sale, and it was the first ever time to do a rummage sale for our work in India, where we have about 50 orphans and a handful of leaders that we take care of there. And you guys were very generous to bring your stuff, and you cleaned out your garages and your closets and your storage rooms, and you brought stuff here, and you turned stuff that was sitting in storage into kingdom assets. And it's pretty incredible what happened. Two big, big, big wins, all right? Here's the the first big win. We blessed a lot of people in the community through your efforts. 
through the leadership of Stephen Debbie Brown and a handful of other people because it's bigger than any one or two people can do. When you brought stuff, people from the community were able to come and there was a steady stream all day long. When I came in, there was probably 30, 35 people in the lobby walking around. And we blessed them with incredibly cheap stuff. Like we priced it very, very low. Nice stuff priced cheaply. And we were able to bless them with a few dollars. They were able to get sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 dollars worth of stuff. And so thanks for letting us bless our community that way. But the other thing that happened was at one drop at a time, $5, a dollar, $10 at a time, we raised, you guys raised over $2,100 to help bring our leaders from India here to the United States to bless them and to build into them. And I think this is a good time for us. It sounds weird to give a hand clap to God and to ourselves, but it's a good time to do that. So thank you so much for being a generous church. I'm blown away by your generosity. All right, your sermon notes there. I have to tell you that today I'm talking to everybody in the room, and I'm talking to, a, to you about a topic that I talked about not that long ago, but from a slightly different perspective. Um, I'm realizing that there's a lot of people in transition. There's Ben and Heather. There's a handful of high school students. Our largest ever high school graduating class at Four Corners Church is happening right now. There are people transitioning from college as well. All kinds of transitioning happening and there's a topic that always comes up when you talk about transitions. And it's the topic of money. And I wanted to, rather than talk about the money you give, you're a generous church, you, um, you supply the needs around here, you're generous to people. Rather than talk about that, I want to talk to you from a different perspective for a minute about money. But to do that, I have to tell you two quick stories. And these stories impacted my life deeply. I want to tell you about two people that most of you have never met. One I'm pretty sure none of you have ever met. And the other one a handful of you met whose lives impacted my life and then by proxy impacted yours. And it's directly on point with what we're talking about today. The first person I want to tell you about is a young lady by the name of Dee Lavender. Dee Lavender went to college with me, and she was two years younger than me. And I didn't know Dee, but I knew her brother Lane. Lane Lavender was for a while the student pastor in the church I grew up in. He was a college student, and while he was a college student, he wanted to serve in a local church that was very important to him. He happened to land at my local church, and I was in high school, and he was a, a bright and articulate young man. And he began to invest in the handful of us that were there, and his life impacted my life. And years later then, when I was in college, I had the good fortune of meeting his sister. And she had a heart for God, loved the Lord, and decided she wanted to spend her life sharing the gospel in what we would call mission fields. That is, outside of our country and uh, largely unchurched areas where the gospel often was not shared. And in her sophomore summer, between her sophomore and junior year, Dee had raised some money. Some people were generous enough to invest in her. And they sent her through their gifts to Africa, where she served an entire summer in incredible uh, squalor and poverty in an environment where there was very little needs met, she landed there and helped people understand the basics of the gospel and serve the poorest of the poor. And at some point, about halfway through that summer, she got sick. Now, hygiene is a little different sometimes in those environments. She got sick, and eventually it got worse, and they flew her home. She got home and landed straight into the hospital, but she never recovered. And just a week or so after she landed back in the United States, Dee passed away. And it was devastating news to hear. And I remember going to the memorial service where we talked about her life and the difference it had made. She was very, very young, 20 years old, and hadn't had a chance to live out all the days that you and I would expect to have. And Certainly there was a certain amount of tragedy in the shortness of her life. But person after person got up and talked about her love for the Lord and her desire to do something important with her life. Her desire to make a difference, not just for herself, but for the world and for the Lord in the world. It's pretty impressive. Because I kind of knew her, I sat there and I watched with greater interest maybe than had it just been somebody I heard about. And I remember sitting in that seat in that auditorium thinking, God, I want you to use my life. I want you to make a difference through my life. And the weight of that decision I was making in that seat in light of the decision Dee had made 
which ultimately cost her her life. Her willingness to go wherever and do whatever the Lord put in front of her ultimately brought her life to what we would call a quick close. And I remember feeling pulled in that direction. Fast forward a few years and our church is only a couple years old and we're trying to uh, begin by being a generous church. That's been a part of the DNA of this place from the beginning. And one of the ways that churches have been generous historically, and our church has done it as well, is we find people that are on the cutting edge of what God is doing and we invest in them and we make sure that their needs are met so they can turn their attention to kingdom endeavors. And there was one young man who I knew very, very well. I grew up with him. His name was Chris Leggett, and Chris was a missionary in Mauritania. You may not know Mauritania, but it's one of the most hostile places to the gospel in the world. And Chris was unable to go in as a direct missionary to Mauritania, so he went in as a social worker, and he and his wife set up a training center to train young ladies how to sew, how to knit, how to do sustainable businesses. They set up one of the only computer rooms uh, with about 15 computer machines in the, uh, the capital city in that country in Mauritania. And people would come in and they were learning how to, you know, engage the internet and do email and that sort of thing. But what was happening behind the scenes in these relationships that were being built among the widows, among the fatherless, as they were teaching them to read and do sustainable business, what was happening is there were a lot of important conversations occurring. And, of course, they began to talk about Jesus because that's really why they were there. And at first it was one and then two and then finally ten and then several dozen people began to commit their lives to Jesus. Outcasts in that society began to turn to Jesus. And without officially acknowledging it, there was the, a burgeoning church right there in Mauritania in the middle of what I would call a demonic stronghold of lies and deception theologically about who God is and what he's about. They did great work. And one day, my childhood friend who lived about nine houses away from me, we played Atari 2600 together and wiffle ball in the front yard. My childhood friend was walking out of his office there in Mauritania, and he was gunned down by some uh, extremists, if you will. Not because of the good work he was doing, but because he dared to talk about Jesus. And I remember traveling from Westchester, Ohio, back to my hometown and sitting in the First Baptist Church packed full of people as this young man with three beautiful children his life was celebrated and I heard person after person talk about the difference that even though he was young his life was making and there were handwritten letters from people in that community under the, uh, the threat of personal violence that they had mailed back to his family talking about the difference he had made in their lives as well it was incredible I remember sitting in that seat saying, God, I want you to use my life to make a difference. I want you to use my life to make a difference in this world for good, but I want you to use my life to make a difference for the kingdom of God. I want this world to be better. I want the kingdom of God to be larger because I had the opportunity to breathe in oxygen and expel carbon dioxide. I want my life to make a difference. So I was a college student, a pastor, a dad, a husband, you know, all the things that goes on in life. And as I've wrestled with what does it mean to make a difference in the world, one topic keeps coming up over and over and over again. It was a topic that Jesus dealt with all the time. Because between the two goals that I'm going to explain to you, between the two goals here, there's an incredible decision that has to be made. One goal is, I want God to make a difference with my life. It's a noble goal. It's a God-honoring goal. It's the goal of every true disciple. I'm not here just for me. The other goal that is vying for your attention, that wants to grip your heart, that wants to grab hold and not let go, is the goal that says, I just want the life I want. I just want a good life college graduations and high school graduations and transition periods in life, they beg the question, what is your life going to be about? As we launch kids into the future, as people transition jobs, as colleges, uh, college you know, careers come to an end, we talk about the, grabbing life by the horns and going for the gusto and all that's good and in its right place. 
But for the disciple of Jesus, when we, have deci- when we have conversations like this, there is a decidedly different tone to our conversations, or at least there should be. It isn't simply what do you want to do with your life. There's a bigger question. What do you think God wants to accomplish through your life? And as I've thought about this deeply the last several weeks, given some You know, my own son is graduating high school and a bunch of young people around here that I care for. And I'm watching their parents engage that. It brought me back to this one big issue that keeps showing up. And it's the issue of money. When Jesus was walking around on the earth, he preached this message. That the number one competitor for your heart, for whether or not you'll live for God's glory or your own, will be money. I want to talk to you about a deeper level theology of money today using one of Jesus' parables. And I think if you'll grab hold of this parable and the truth behind it, it will help you not live just for yourself. But it will set you on a path to make a difference in this world with your life. And as you sit down, as you start down that path, you're going to have to wrestle deeply with the impact money's going to have in your life. I don't want anything from you today. This is not a prelude to an offering. But there is a stranglehold spiritually in our culture on people's hearts, not in their wallets. And at the core of it is a fundamental question Whose life are you living? Whose life? And when you dig down into the mess of that question, one of the biggest resources, one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest issues that shows up is the issue of money. And I want anybody to leave here today ignorant of what Jesus had to say about it, because I think if you'll grab it, it will set you free. We're going to look at a parable that is controversial in the Bible, if you will. It's controversial because the hero of this parable Jesus tells is really a he's a clever crook. He's a a guy whose heart isn't always in the right place. And Jesus is going to use this character he describes to make a very valid point. And we're going to use it today to discuss a, a robust theology of money on a deeper level. So in Luke chapter 16... I'm going to read the bulk of the story from the message version of the Bible. And I have the beginnings of the story there in your message notes. And you can go there and you want on your phone or on the screen. You can follow along. All right. So Luke chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples, there was once a rich man who had a manager. And he got reports that the manager had been taking advantage of his position by running up huge personal expenses. So he called him in and he said, what's this I hear about you? You're fired. And I want a complete audit of your books. Now, on the screen or in uh, in your handheld or in your Bible, here's what the Bible continues to say. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do? I've lost my job as a manager. I'm not strong enough for a laboring job and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I've got a plan, he says. Here's what I'll do. And then when I'm turned out into the street, people will take me into their houses. Then he went at it, one after the other. He called in the people who were in his debt, who were in debt to his masters. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He replied, a hundred jugs of olive oil. The manager said, here, take your bill, sit down quickly now and write 50. To the next he said, and you, what do you owe? He answered, a hundred sacks of wheat. And he said, take your bill, write in 80. Now, here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Street-wise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They're on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but only for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival. To concentrate your attention on bare essentials. So you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. That last sentence again. To concentrate your attention on the bare essentials. So you'll live, really live, and not just complacently get by on good behavior. 
This week I had the opportunity with Pastor Will to fly down to Florida and pick up some equipment. Church was going out of business, friend of a friend, we saved a ton of money. All the work that we're going to be doing in the uh, warehouse over the summer, most of that equipment is bought and paid for for pennies on the dollar. It's incredible, but that's not the point. The point is, is that while we were down in Florida, we took a day to relax with some of my friends out on a boat on the Gulf of Mexico. And so we go up to this marina and we pull in and I am amazed at the amount of wealth on display. We're going by some boats and one by one, my friend is talking about these boats and I'm a boat guy. I like boats. Most people do. And we're driving by and I'm like, well, how much would that boat cost? Like three million bucks and seven million dollars and ninety thousand dollars. I'm just blown away by how much wealth is on display there in those coastal towns. If you've ever been to Florida or the beach, you've seen it. The real estate prices skyrocket. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But it made me reflect on what people live their lives for. It's the kind of question Jesus regularly asked the people who listen to him. What are you living your life for? And then in the middle of those kinds of conversations, he tells a story like this. Where he praises not the crookedness of the manager. Some people call him the shrewd manager. He's praising, though, this survivability mentality that this guy had. And in this story that has some dark overtones about crookedness and not managing and being selfish, Jesus elevates a certain value to think more deeply about what really matters. Here's why. So you don't just live complacently, lazily, and so that you don't set your sights on the wrong goals, so that we would have in front of us a compelling story to push us towards shrewdness and good business, but for the right motivations, so that we can make a difference in this world. What I want to walk you through now for the next couple minutes, none of this is complex, But in a culture that teaches a different message, we have to be reminded of it from time to time. I want to walk you through a handful of to-don'ts and to-dos with money. And specifically, if you're in high school, I want you to listen to me. Because this world will lie to you. If you're in college, if you're at the front end of a job transition, if you're climbing the ladder corporately right now, listen to me. This world will lie to you. And they will tell you that the goal is to end up on a beach somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico with a boat and a big house. And that is what you're here for. You breathe oxygen to that end. And it is a lie. God did not put you on this earth just to enjoy it. Although I hope you do. He put you on this earth to make a difference for him. And whether or not you grasp that, it will show up mostly in how you engage money and people. God calls us to use money to bless people. And we ask God to bless us with money, and if we're not careful, we use people. And in stories like this, and in many other stories, Jesus tried to get the attention of the disciples who were listening to him in that day because he knew the number one competitor for their hearts would be stuff. That people would trade out the life of significance he had called them to, and they would push themselves, sometimes destroy themselves, to get what they thought was an easy, comfortable, enjoyable life. So let's talk about what not to do with money for a minute. I'm talking about the money God has blessed you with, not the money I want you to give me, all right, or the work here, or the ministry here. Number one, write it in the blank. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Practically, we need money. You need money. God gives you the ability to earn money. And then he asks you to manage it well, so don't waste it. In this story, what happened was the crooked manager, he was wasteful. He was selfish, and instead of managing the business well, he took all advantage for himself. Luke, again, chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possession. So he called him and he asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Don't be wasteful. 
If you want to take full advantage of the life that God is calling you to, and you're engaging a world that operates by the giving and receiving of money, one principle that can set a disciple of Jesus above the crowd is be careful in how you spend the money God allows to come into your hands. Don't be frivolous with it. Don't be wasteful with it. Now, some of you, especially those of you who have Dutch blood in you, you're loving this point right now, right? I make fun of that because there are several Dutch people in here. When I say, you know, your culture is known for being really tight. Some people would be like, oh, that sounds offensive. You can't talk about people like that. But when you tell a Dutch person like that, they smile and they say, you're exactly right. It's a compliment to them. And our church has a lot of Dutch people, and I'm talking specifically to you. You're like, yeah, this is exactly right. You don't waste it. You don't waste it. This world will tell you, though, spend money. Give us your money. When you give us your money, you'll be happy. When you give us your money, you'll find fulfillment. When you give us your money, and the Scripture calls us consistently to be good stewards of the money that God has blessed us with. And when people are climbing the corporate ladder and graduating from college and from high school, sometimes the allure of that position the allure of that profession, the allure of that profit can be very, very compelling. And in its right place, that's good. But to not understand that you're responsible to manage well the money that God blesses with you, well, that has wrecked a lot of marriages and lives. Sometimes when I do weddings and I think about what I want to say to the bride and groom, and I did one just last week, I come to that line where I pronounce them husband and wife, and I say, you know, until death do you part. The truth of the matter is, is I could change that, and it might be more accurate. Until debt do you part. Because the number one challenge I see in marriages is this issue right here. Money. Money. And it was a big issue in Jesus' day. It's part of the human condition. In our fallen state, we're all susceptible to the allure of money. And one of the first principles that God wants us to understand as his children, because he loves us, because he calls us more than to just exist, is to understand that we're not to be wasteful with money. That's why in this church, we have incredible controls put in place. Tonight, at our core rally meeting, for those of you that call this church home, I'm going to show you some of that stuff. We have incredible controls put in place to make sure that when you trust us with money that God's blessed you with, that it can't be frivolously spent by any person. Because stewardship's a big deal to God, and it's a frontline level engagement in your growth as a disciple in a world so bent on more stuff. Number two. Here's something not to do with money. Don't love it. Don't love money. And this is countercultural. In Luke chapter 16, near the bottom of this story, as Jesus kind of expands on the point, here's what he says. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the truth is, a lot of Christians are walking faithless lives, powerless lives, because money has a grip on their heart. And the place that Jesus is supposed to occupy has been already filled and sometimes it's because we have a lot of money, and other times it's the fear that comes when we don't have a lot of money. And that's why Jesus was very blatant, and he said, don't love this stuff. Your life, your value, your worth, your meaning, your impact is not dependent on the amount of money you have. And that's not what our world tells us. It's not sometimes what financial planners tell us. And it's not certainly what advertisers tell us, but it's what Jesus told us. And this is where every follower of Jesus has to make a basic decision. Do I believe in God or do I believe what God said? Do I believe in God or do I believe God? Do I believe that when Jesus talked about money, he was telling the truth and it's for my good and it should impact the way I live? Don't love money. Don't waste it, don't love it. Number three, don't trust it. Don't trust it. In Proverbs 23, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. 
but cast a glance, cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. For they'll surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. My boys were younger, they would work to earn some money and they'd get a little bit saved up and you know, a few weeks later it'd be gone. Where'd that money go? I don't know, Dad. It was a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit there. That's not just for kids, is it? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> you know, I got a little cash in my pocket. I think I know it's gone. It's the way it works. The Bible is saying when you put your trust in something so fleeting like money, don't be surprised if you don't live with a sense of security in your life because money isn't secure. Your life and your value, if you build it only on that thing, if it doesn't have its appropriate place, if it's not part of your life, but rather it becomes your life, you're headed for an unstable reality. It will impact everything about you. Every relationship. Every dynamic. You won't be able to make a single bold decision because of the fear attached to the security that comes from money. You won't be able, if God were to call you to do something dramatic, you won't be able to. That's the grip that money can have on us. So don't waste it, don't love it, don't trust it. And number four, don't expect it to satisfy. If I could get every high school kid who's graduating, every college kid, and every person who's transitioning to understand, don't expect your money to deeply satisfy your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. But who loves wealth, but whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Then the writer says, This is meaningless. Somebody asked J.P. Morgan, one of the tycoons of early American industrialism, how much money was enough. Here was his answer Just a little more. Just a little more. I remember when Jill and I were first married and our combined family income was about $30,000. Um, that was it, you know, two people working. And I remember thinking, man, if there could ever be a day we could make like $38,000, if there would ever be a day, Jesus, if we could make $38,000, I will never ask you for another thing. That day came and went and $38,000 was not enough. Then it was forty. You know, you know, you know, You know what I'm saying, right? Just me. You guys going to let me do that one all alone? Okay, that's fine. Let's keep moving. That's fine. All right, now let's go to the second column. So what do you need to remember then? What do you need to remember about money? Let me give you a handful of things here. All right? Number one, it all belongs to God. Now, I'm not talking to people who aren't following Jesus. There might be some things in here for you. I'm talking to Christians right now. When God gives you money, he doesn't give it to you. He loans it to you. Every bit of Money in your wallet, in your bank account, in your retirement, whatever. It all belongs to him. That's not Ben talking. That's the Bible. That's the Lord. In our parable here, it's when Jesus said there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting, here's our word, his possessions. The manager wasted possessions that didn't belong to him. They belonged to somebody else. For me, this is the beginning point of freedom when it comes to finances. This is the beginning point of freedom. God, it's yours. It's yours. This is your money. And by the way, it's not just money. When you're a follower of Jesus, that spouse is not your spouse. That is a daughter or a son of the king. And God has given you that person to share life with on loan to you. Children, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. And we're supposed to, like with money, we're supposed to steward that for God's glory, for his agenda. And interestingly enough, for followers of Jesus, when we do that, we get to enjoy the life God's called us to do. So it all belongs to God. Here's a big one. God is using money to show me, me. God is using money to show me, me. That's what he's doing here. God's going to use money to show you about yourself. When you look at your finances over a year, five years, ten years, what you're really doing is looking into the mirror of your values. It's you who's on display, not the amount in your checkbook, in your account. 
In Matthew chapter 6. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. There your heart will be also. Wherever you put your treasure, your heart's going to go there. And interestingly, wherever you put your heart, that's where your treasure will go. One will lead the other. So for followers of Jesus, we're called to give our heart fully over to the life that God has called us to live. And when we do that then, our treasures just become a part of the life. They don't define our value. They don't make us important. There's no winning by counting the amount of money in the checking account or how big the boat is. No. Money is a tool that God uses to test me, and it will show you some things about you. Number one, money shows me what I love most. From time to time, I have the good fortune of meeting some incredible people. All levels of income and, you know, assets. And I love it when I meet a person who is just so devoted to the Lord and to their family that even though they don't have much, Income coming in, they have managed it well, and they have taken care of their responsibilities. And with what's left over, they've blessed the world around them. And in this room, by the way, there are dozens of people like that who are never going to be wealthy by the world standards. But they have wealth that almost is immeasurable because the bit that they had, they managed according to stable values. And sometimes they get some toys as well. And sometimes they don't, and they've had to make some hard decisions. They've had to say no to themselves. But one thing is true about them. They loved not money. They loved people. They loved their church. They loved other ministries. They loved orphans. They loved all kinds of things, and they were glad to part with their money to bless and invest in those places. Like it's the man or the woman who feels satisfied every time they look at their account and that amount comes out to pay for their house. You don't, you don't want to pay that much money, but you're glad to because you're taking care of your family. And you think, now that money there, that's put to good use. And it shows my value of care for the people God has put in my life. There's a verse in the Bible that says God loves a cheerful giver. It's an interesting little verse. I have found that when people love to give, they're always cheerful. No lie. That's not me pandering or manipulating with that statement. There are people in this room who love to give to other people. They love to buy meals. They love to support an orphan in India, perhaps. They love to give to their church. Or there's somebody in the drive-thru and, you know, behind them, and they buy their meal. They, they're givers, and it brings them deep joy. And they manage their money so that they can consistently give. And when they look over five, ten years of spiritual and financial engagement, because they're connected, they see something about themselves. Money shows me, number two, what I really trust most. Somebody said, and I think it's worth repeating, I've said it many times myself, that if you look at somebody's calendar and checkbook, you can tell what their values are. Where do you spend your time and your money? Here's another thing that money shows me. Money shows me if God can trust me. Now, I don't mean whether or not you have like, you know, some immeasurable sense of integrity. I mean whether or not God can trust you with resources. This is the biblical stories that we read when Jesus talks about money. They all come down to the issue of trust. Who do you trust, the Lord or your stuff? Number three, money is a tool. That's it. It's a tool. It's not the goal. Money is a tool. Luke 16, 9. I tell you, use your worldly wealth. Use your wealth. Use your wealth. Don't let it use you. Use your wealth to accomplish the things that God has called you to accomplish in this world. Take care of your family. Listen, men, if you're not, ladies, if you're not, but let me, let me just zero in on men. Ladies, don't get offended. Man, if you're not taking care of your family, but you have time to go out and buy the greatest and latest video game, your values are out of whack. They're just out of whack. 
take care of your responsibilities. Because money is a tool that God has put in your hands so that you can accomplish the things he's called you to. So what has he called you to? There we are again. What are you here for? What's your life purpose? And does your wallet reflect that? That's a question for you to answer, not one you have to answer to me about. So money is a tool that God has put in our hands. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. We should make plans, the Bible says, counting on God to direct us. Make plans with your money. When you look at this manager who was shrewd, the part that Jesus praised, not the selfish thing that got him in trouble, he looked ahead. He said, I'm headed for trouble. He made a plan. He said, down, here's what I'm going to do. And then he acted with a sense of urgency in his life. And I have a hunch that some of you would do well by this week sitting down and going, where are we headed? What's our plan? And then acting with a certain amount of urgency to more closely align your stated values with your behavior. I mean, there's no such thing as a godly, mature, wise Christian who isn't managing money more and more like a good steward over time. Now, you may start in a very bad place. It could be that you got in upside down. It could be you're a delta, a difficult set of cards, and you haven't played them well, perhaps. But when you wake up to what the Bible says about money, there should be a certain amount of urgency, not carelessness. And this then begins to align you into the life that God has called you to. Number four. According to the Bible, the best use of money is get people into heaven with it. Interesting in this story in Luke chapter 16. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. He's not saying buy friends. He's not saying money can buy friends. It can't. But use it to gain friends. Use it to create environments. Use it to bless people. Use it to shower on other things. But here's why. So that when the money's gone, and it always disappears, friends. It always goes. And if you don't spend it, your kids will. They will. They will. They're going to spend it. It's fine. But when that happens, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Yeah, you can use something temporary like money to make an eternal difference. And so this weekend, dozens of you used a very limited resource called time. And you used it to rally around our efforts with the rummage sale to bless a leader in India who's doing incredible stuff. And the time passed, but the impact won't. It won't pass. The Bible says that you can actually use money in such a way that you can help people get into heaven. When I was sitting in that funeral for my friend Chris Leggett, I had a smile on my face, even through my tears, knowing that our church had blessed he and his wife and his work there in Mauritania. And while that work is over in the way that it is, those seeds of the gospel that were planted literally made a difference for eternity. And in a few months, when we bring Pastor James, who leads our work in India, here to North Cincinnati, you can look at him and shake his hand knowing that you were a part of a church that said, we're going to use something temporary like money to help you make an eternal difference. And you can do it yourself, not just do church work. It's one of the greatest ways for you to use money. One of the reasons why I want you to manage your money well that God has blessed you with is not just so that you can give to our church, although you should. Giving to God's church is a big deal. And if you call this church home, you should give more each week to this church than you eat out in a single meal. Just let that sink in for a minute. Some of you will go eat out today and you'll spend more money on a single meal than you give to this church. And that's between you and the Lord. I don't even know if that's true for you personally. I just know it happens. That's okay, but something's out of whack. But you can use money, you can use money to help people get into heaven, but you're going to have to manage your money well to do it. Here's why. Number five, one day, you and I both will give an account to God. This is not a scare tactic. This is actually supposed to produce in us a sense of joy. It's going to produce for us a sense of joy. I've learned, by the way, it's not a matter of your intelligence, your, you know, your smarts, even your emotional intelligence, your good look, a good school, or a good family. But very successful people have mastered a few key things. They didn't master everything. They mastered a few key things. 
A few simple but great ideas that they latched onto and held onto for dear life. And over the course of their life, it made a dramatic difference. Perhaps they held on to, I'm going to invest in my marriage. And it may have been rocky, but they held on to that. And over the course of their life, it made a difference. I'm going to make sure that I invest in my kids more than just give them things. I'm going to build into them. And I'm going to make sure they're around people who share our values. And so that when they're not around people that share our values, those values can be deeply entrenched in their life. And they held on to that. Maybe they didn't give them the best vacations. But they mastered a few key things. And I have found that when disciples of Jesus have mastered the place of money in their life, when they think about standing before their God, it brings them a sense of joy to think that they're going to be held accountable. Not that they've earned it or that they've done it perfectly, but they look forward to the day when, when they hear God say, listen to this word, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. Now I will make you ruler over many. That's what happens. That's what's at stake here. Will you take something so pitiful and, and invaluable and transient like money, and will you use it to do great things in this world with it? Or will it all be about you? Every follower of Jesus has to make this decision. Then number six, here's what Jesus says. Faithful with little, if I'm faithful with little, God can trust me with more. In Luke 16, 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You want to know what the issue of money comes down to? What do you want to do with your life? Now, in this room are all kinds of followers of Jesus at all points of spiritual development. And there is a battle for your soul. It's true. It's a spiritual battle. And on the one hand, there is God calling you to truly live life, not a wasted life, but a Life worth living, a life that has made impact in the world, a life that has made a difference for your family, for your friends, for those around you, probably for your community and the world in some way. And then there's the life that says, just go and be all about the house and the boat. Just as an example, you substitute in whatever it is that's got your attention. The idea here is, is that if you finish school, for some of us, the goal is this, finish school, get a good job, find a spouse, get a decent house. Take good vacations, grow old, be healthy when you grow old, die easy and don't go to hell. And that's really all we're living for. That is not the life God has called you to. That's what our culture says is an acceptable vision of your life. But God has said something so much more. You were destined, you were called to make a difference. And I want you to imagine for just a moment that day that you stand before God. Again, I'm just talking to followers of Jesus. No scare tactic here. And what are you going to bring him? What are you going to bring him? What are you going to lay at his feet? Because you have an opportunity to use what he has put in your hands to make a difference in this world. And some of you, you're killing it. You inspire me. You, in your incredibly busy lives, you found a way to carve out a value for investing in others. And you're about building people up. And you help out those less fortunate. And I don't know how you do it. I'm in awe of you. And others of you, I don't know, and I'm not trying to sit in judgment. Let me just speak for myself. I've been there where it's just kind of listless. And I get distracted. And it becomes about me and mine. And I've done it just long enough to know that that is a dead-end road. And it doesn't produce joy. Now, you were called to live your life to make a difference. And that battle is going to show up in your wallet a lot. So what are you going to do? Are you going to become a good steward of what God's blessed you with? So that you can in turn invest in eternal things? Or is it going to be all about you? Are you going to keep promising to do better? Are you going to actually step up and manage what he's blessed you with better? That's for your good. 
And I like to say when I talk like this so directly with folks, if you feel like you can't do that here in this place, then find a ministry that you can with integrity bless abundantly with your resources, somebody that you believe in. If it's another church, deeply land into that place. I feel like this is a good place to do that in. Jill and I are heavily vested here. And we manage the money we can, so of course we take care of our needs and some of our wants. Of course we do. But a good portion of our family budget goes into making sure that people in this church have an opportunity to grow, to become developing disciples of Jesus. And we're staking our claim that if we'll continue to do that year after year after year, we'll stand before our Heavenly Father and we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful. And I will tell you, as I get older and as I watch transitions more and more, that is more and more appealing to me. And the stuff of this world is less and less. The idea of entering my retirement years, walking a beach in Florida collecting seashells is less and less desirable for me. And the idea of giving myself more and more to the work of God so the kingdom of heaven is populated and heaven is more crowded, that sounds like something I'm ready to give my life for. So what's your vision of what God's calling you to? Why don't you grab out your connect cards and let's take a step or two in that direction. I want to give you a chance right now, if you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, to commit your life to him. To say to him, Jesus, I'm, I'm not saved. I don't have a relationship with you. And I don't have anything I can bring to make that happen. I have no good works. <laughs> Can't buy it. So I'm going to trust the work that Jesus, you have done on the cross and in your resurrection to secure my relationship to my heavenly father. If you'd like to do that, we'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. Today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And we believe that when you do that, when you trust him, the Bible says believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That he'll save you. You'll be born again as it will. You get a fresh lease on life. And he deposits in your life a purpose and a destiny. We want you to discover that. We want to help you do it. But you have to take that first step of inviting him to lead your life. And then you put that card in the offering bucket, perhaps. And we pray for you this week and communicate with you briefly about what it means to follow Jesus. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. In that act of baptism, you're submerged completely in the grace of God. And then you're raised to new life with him. If you have questions about that or want to be baptized, just check the box. The next step C is the one I told you about earlier where you can simply write in the number of a small group. If you're not prepared to do that today, take the catalog home. You can email us at smallgroups at Four Corners Church with the number. Or in the next few days, you'll be able to go online and sign up online as well. And we'll leave registrations open for a couple weeks. But if you're ready, no reason you can't do that right now. Now, the next step D, here's what it says. It's a prayer. I'm inviting you to pray. Here's what it says. God, help me to see the opportunities before me today to be a faithful manager of what you have entrusted to me. You're going to get up tomorrow, and you're going to see people. There are going to be opportunities. Things are going to come your way, and you can look at them as an opportunity for you to be a faithful manager of the life and the opportunity and the calling that God put in front of you. Now, next step E is for you, not for me. It says, in the next 30 days, I'll make a financial investment to help populate heaven. I don't care how you do it. But I'd like for you to think about taking some money out of your pocket, putting it somewhere else with the goal of helping make heaven more crowded. There's a hundred ways for you to do it. You're smart people. You can figure it out. All right, let's pray about these things right now. Father, I want to thank you that you haven't called us to a life of ease and personal comfort. I want to thank you, Lord, that you've called us to purpose. You've called us to impact. There isn't a person under the sound of my voice right now, God, that you don't want to use for greatness in this world, to make a difference. But not only in this world, for heaven's sake as well. So I pray, God, that as a congregation, we would get up from this conversation and our eyes would be a little more focused 
we'd see that we are nothing more than managers of your stuff and the life you've given us. But that's not a position of dishonor. It's actually an incredible, incredible statement of the value and worth that you have on our lives. That we get to be partners with you to make a difference in this world. My God, here's the truth. Some of us have just been flat out sinning when it comes to money and stuff. And I pray, God, that right now there would be acts of confession and repentance in this room. And that today there would be a decision made that from this point forward, we're going to be better managers of the stuff you bless us with. And God, I pray that you would enlarge in our vision to see how the stuff you've blessed us with, this temporary stuff, can make a dramatic difference for eternity. Give us a vision for that. Lord, I pray with those that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. I have nothing to bring you, so I trust the work that you accomplished in your death and resurrection to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. I want to follow you with my life. God, I pray that this church, for as long as it exists, will continue to be a generous church that uses temporary things like money to bless people, to bless this community, to build up our church family and our faith, and to literally reach around the world to make an eternal difference. And God, I pray a special prayer for every high school graduate every college student, every person climbing the corporate ladder, that you would help us see the opportunities in front of us to be the manager that you've called us to be. Make us shrewd and wise and to be about eternal things. I pray this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.